Hey, welcome to Being Creative. My name is Rick Leaf. As you know, I'm the host of this show. Where today, I'm gonna jump into a complicated conversation about Canada and Canadian culture. My life, like you and yours, is a collection of experiences, and these experiences ground our understanding of ourselves and how we fit or don't fit with each other. And for better or for worse, uh, I want to talk about it. So let's do it, okay? I'm glad you're here. We're coming up on Canada Day at the end of Pride Month, and somehow it feels fitting that we should have a little chat. We live in this world that loves to paint all of our subtlety and nuance with these broad brushstrokes of hyperbole and stereotypes and generalizations. So I would like this podcast to be a little bit more artistic in this outing and reclaim the palette of possibilities to paint a picture that uses all of the secondary and tertiary colors that arise when we allow life and all of its complexities that we live to intersect with each other. Okay, and to begin, uh, let's just be clear. This is my humble opinion, right? G.K. Chesterton wrote in The Man Who Was Thursday uh, this great quote, it's always the humble man who talks too much, the proud man watches himself too closely. And uh, and I think that's one of the reasons, so I'm going to try to be humble enough to have a humble opinion and share it with you, but I'm just going to tell you about my experience and why Canada and the Canadian culture and the Canadian experience has become more and more complicated uh, for me, and I don't think that that's a bad thing at all. I've told you stories before about sitting with Standing Nation, the powwow drum group that was based out of the First People's House at the University of Victoria. I did that for five years. That was my first exposure to how Canada is complicated. And it was really profound to sit there and, uh, and, and learn from the Indigenous perspective on land and the sense of place and connection to place. Uh, I remember the very first night, the drummers start going around the circle and they're introducing themselves in their traditional language. And the most interesting part for me was the the, the introduction of where they were from was really a connection uh, or, or an explanation of an introduction to who they were from, who claimed them and identified that they were from that nation. And it gets to me, and and the whole the 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 closer it's getting around the drum to me, I'm like, I don't even know how to answer this question. Um, I have no idea who I'm from. You know, through colonization and Christianity and and uh, conversion and all that, my my grandparents didn't pass on any connection to who we were from. And I'll be damned if I'm ever going to find a sense of connection in the religious culture I was raised in. So I just sat there and I realized in that moment, in that way, I didn't know where I was from, who I was from. It was confusing. Here's the thing, 
Uh, being confused isn't necessarily a bad thing, particularly when you're curious about the world and curious about why you're confused. And, and I found the discovery in the wild difference between Indigenous and settler Canadian perspectives. Rob Spade was the drumkeeper. He was from Emmetong First Nation, way up north of uh, Kenora. And uh, when he got to uh, the university, he found that there was a, an Anishinaabe powwow drum that had been gifted to the house. It was in a time of resting. So he followed all the protocols and the ceremonies and everything to, that are involved that I don't understand in, in opening the drum. And he went and found uh, an elder from Lekwungen Skiptic and, and got his permission, his blessing, whatever you word they would use, uh, to share his teachings and his songs on Lekwungen territory. It's just uh, the idea that just because he had the right and he carried the weight of leadership over there didn't mean that he just automatically had it over here and that he would just uh, do whatever he wanted in Lekwungen. It was just a respectful way of um, recognizing that you're in somebody else's territory. And Skip was happy. Uh, presumably, he became the elder that, uh, you know, kind of covered the drum, and it was amazing. I remember also one of the drummers was the poet laureate for the city of Victoria at the time. Uh, they were a Mohawk Tuscarora artist. They'd lived in Lekwungen for, I think, 15-ish years. But they would always identify themselves um, as a guest living in Lekwungen territory. Um, and I found that just immediately profound, you know, versus the settler perspective. If you're a settler and, and I asked you, uh, wait, where are you from? You're probably going to say whatever town or city you're living in. You might have lived there for a month or two or a year. Uh, I bought a house. This is where I'm from. This is mine. This is mine. So the perspective was profound. And I looked at it, and, and I still do, on many of these... Um, you know, news stories and different things about doing business in a territory, um, doing developments in a territory, whatever things are happening in a territory. It's like, I mean, when we, it's like being a guest in someone's house. If you're welcomed to be there, you're welcome to be there. Make yourself comfortable. This is where the dishes are. There's the food. Help yourself if you're hungry, if you're thirsty, you know, whatever. And you can be absolutely welcome and safe and comfortable and relaxed as a guest in somebody's house. But you know it's not your house. You don't just chuck your dirty underwear on the floor. You don't leave your dishes all over the place. You live respectfully because you honor someone's space by living respectfully. And that was my takeaway that these different artists and friends and drummers that I was meeting that were from someone and somewhere else while they were here in Lekwungen territory, they were living and acknowledging, hey, this is where I'm from. This is where I am. And I'm really grateful to be able to be here drumming and making friends and investing in my education. It was just such a simple thing. It was beautiful. I think Canada is complicated when you only want one voice, when you only want one perspective or experience, then it's complicated. Let me give you an example. Uh, 
few years ago, the city of Victoria took down a, a statue outside of City Hall. Uh, the statue was of John A. Macdonald, the first prime minister. Um, they took it down because members of Lekwungen, uh asked the city if they would remove the statue because of what John A. represented for them as the indigenous communities in this territory, which is part of the story of Canada, and Canada's complicated. And while Johnny McDonald may for many people be like the architect of this coast-to-coast confederation, he was also uh, absolutely instrumental in the residential school system and implementing all sorts of policies that were meant to um, breed the Indian out of uh, the Indian, or, or however he put it. You know, it was, uh, there's lots of racism, bigotry, and, uh, and the people who defend him go, oh, he was a progressive guy of his day, and whatever. And they, they try to have all these, um, uh, you know, qualifiers that say, you know, you know, this is, guy's complicated, the story's complicated, but let's just make it simple, and let's just say he was just a great guy all the way around. It's like nobody's a great guy all the way around. It's complicated. Life's complicated. People are complicated. Anyways, what was profound to me was this um, groundswell of settler resistance, the accusations that history was being lost or rewritten. And what I took away from the reaction was that the people losing their minds over the removal of a statue that I'm guessing the vast majority had never even seen before, didn't really care about, probably if they ever went to City Hall, walked right by and didn't even look at it. What they were really pissed off about was that they, somebody was taking away the simplicity of the story that they told themselves about Canada, which didn't allow for any complexity or complica- complicated nuance, any difficulty to face truths about founding fathers, about racism, about sexism, bigotry, corruption, about humanity. They were rejecting and were pissed off that somebody was saying it's not as simple as all of that. Canada is complicated. You know... A few years ago, and it's it's horrific. I mean, however many years it's been, but you know, when when Canada started to um, face up to some of the history of of race of the residential school system, it was because they were discovering these mass unmarked graves at residential school sites. But you know what? These weren't an unexpected discovery or a discovery at all, a revelation at all to indigenous people. They had been talking about it for years because it was their children, their grandparents, their grandparents' siblings, or aunties and uncles who were, who were taken. It was their children who didn't come back. It was their families who'd been trying to get someone, anyone, to listen. And they hadn't. And all of a sudden, you know, we start discovering these grave sites And it's complicated, right? It's horrific. It's genocide. It's terrible. It is everything they've been saying for decades that no one wanted to listen to. That's Canada, man. It's not the only complicated story, though, is it? 
I mean, we're coming up to the end of Pride Month as we near Canada Day. And it's worth pausing to acknowledge, I think there are 195 countries in the world. In 64, it is illegal to be LGBTQ. Six countries in the world carry the death penalty for being LGBTQ. And in six other countries, there's no legal certainty and the death penalty could be applied. So we're, we're talking like a third of the world? That's madness in, in the year 2023. That just seems like madness. And Canada might not be, you know, the least progressive. But man, if you look at our history, and it's again, it's not my story, and this is just, um, well, it is, I'm part of this story, but it's, the, you know, this isn't my story to tell. Um, but you start looking at the, I think it was in the 90s, like 25 years ago that Canada added sexual orientation to the Canadian Human Rights Act. But it was still many years into the 2000s to get the right for same-sex marriage and rights and freedoms enjoyed by every single solitary same-sex couple in the world. Like, it seems like year after year, you're like, man, it's like 1996. How can it be? How can we be talking about this? Oh, my God. It's like the year 2000. How can we still be talking about this? It's 2010. How can we still be talking about this? Hey, it's 2015. How can we still be talking about this? Like, it's like, yeah, it's 2023. And this homophobia and this racism and this intolerance and the 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 repealing of rights and freedoms and these slurs and everything has your orientation ever been used as a slur against you the fact that this still happens is bonkers it's absolutely bonkers I feel like will ferrell in uh, his magatu character in zoolander Canada's complicated, man. And it, it's because it's not just about you. It's not just your story. It's not just my story. It's a, it's a story we might be part of. But we need every color. We need every voice, every story and perspective to be seen and heard and understood if we're ever going to have a hope of seeing the whole picture, of seeing all of our possibility all of our hope and the future that is big enough to provide for all of us. I, I remember, um, God, it was many years ago, I wrote a slam poem for Judy Wasilis-Jolies, who is the MP, Member of Parliament for Winnipeg North, which is the area of the city that we were living in at the time, and it was called Vote for a Vision. She was uh, she resigned her position as a Member of Parliament, and she was running against a well-known businessman to become the mayor of Winnipeg. Now, that's where we were living at the time, and she was our friend, and uh, been working and supporting uh, her uh, with the North End Artist Collective and all sorts of things in the area of the city we were, and, and we had sold our house, and we were in the process of traveling around the world as a family. So I wasn't in Winnipeg anymore, but, man, I was invested. I cared, and I really believed in her, and... So I wrote what I think was the third slam poem I'd ever written. Uh, I wrote it while we were traveling. And uh, 
I remember horribly trying. We were in Prague one day, and I thought the, <laughs> the really cool bridge in Prague would be a great place to to record this slam, but I hadn't memorized it quite yet, and so we kept trying to video it, and, and it sucked horribly. And so I just kept trying to memorize it. We just kept traveling, and it was when we got to the U.K., and we were at an afternoon. We were staying with a family in Oxford, and I found this really cool little park, and I just took my camera. And I've never been one of those. Now it's, you know, we know all of these influencers and YouTubers who turn the camera on themselves and walk around talking to themselves. I wasn't used to doing that at all and had never done it. But then I walked around this little park, and uh, I'd actually like to play the audio from this vision because, uh, from, yeah, from this, uh, this slam called uh, Vote for a Vision because there's a few lines. I mean, there's something I love about being an artist where you are, you intentionally, I intentionally disregard the pessimism that exists in all of us. Like this is likely never going to happen and good things probably won't happen. And the bad people will probably, I'm <laughs> bad people will probably prevail. And, but as an artist to work in with the palette of possibility and hope and to articulate the best version of ourselves. I really do love doing that. And so I just went and found this video. I want to play it for you right now. And then I want to talk to you about it. Art and politics, they've always been joined at the hips. They're all tied up together like melodies and lyrics. They're two sides to the only coin with any currency left in this bankrupt world to transform society's slow slide down to a long climb back around. You know, they say where there's a will, there's a way. Well, these days, the choices that need to be made need voices to be raised and cards to be played, because let's face it, you gotta be all in if you're betting on a vision worth living. And Judy Wasler-Shalees. Now there's a last name to drive an inexperienced tongue to its knees, but... It fits like a glove in this city that loves to bask in the flame that's drawn thousands of last names to cross oceans and seas, leave behind homes and families, to plant their lives and dreams like seeds in Winnipeg. And buried at the heart of it all, her story is a history of drawing the lives of many together so that all these streams can flow with the force of a river. See, art and politics are part of our heritage. They're gifts given to secure our inheritance. The bright lights at the end of the hall that lead to a future generous enough it can afford us all. Not haunted by the ghosts of a bygone age when opportunity was won by class, gender, or race. Yesterday, that might have been the way, but not today. Because we are not voiceless, helpless or hopeless, nor are we left high and dry without chances or choices. This is our city of bright lights and dreams, and we need somebody like Judy who will provide the beams to support all our big ideas. Because it's hard work peeling the whitewash from the stone walls thrown up to impede any real progress. This city needs a vision built on compassion and not just pity. A window to the eyes of the soul, willing to look at all of the causes of suffering and not just the effects the attitudes and institutions of destruction that prevent the construction of a future that will include everyone and not just the chosen few. And yes, Sam, I'm talking about you. Every voice has a choice. You could choose to ignore, reject, or embrace. Give up and give in, or 
get up start over again and again and again this is our city this is our new beginning and in october make the decision vote for a vision okay so <clears throat> full disclaimer judy didn't win <laughs> Which sucks, um, but you know, life, right? Um, a couple of the points of that slam that came to me, you know, art and politics are part of our heritage. And this idea of the, the institutions and structures that we've developed that are gifts that are given to help us secure our inheritance. And, and I believe, you know, if you've... It's so easy to just dump on politicians and to dump on people who are in leadership. They're not doing enough, particularly right now. Social media is just terrible. All these armchair quarterbacks that are just sitting there through anonymous, um, you know, profiles. They, they can't even like they don't have the nuts to just kind of <laughs> I don't know. Uh I'm like self-censoring on this episode so bad. I hate it. There's a guy, one of the, the city councilors in Victoria right now. This just popped into my brain. I'm just going to go off, okay? There's a, a guy who is one of the city councilors that was just um, voted in the last election. He's very progressive. And the Times colonist newspaper just did an article on him that um, for his pro-development missing middle housing initiative type um, support to increase density in the city of Victoria and different regions, that he's gotten all of this vitriolic sort of dumping on him on social media, including some uh, death threats. So he'd gone to the police, he's going to the media saying, like, I'm pushing back, I'm not taking this, this is stupid. Like, to get death threats because you support a progressive policy on increased densification like <laughs> it's madness this is the world we live in it's bonkers it's absolutely bonkers and i think you know art and politicians artists and politicians it's our heritage it's they are gifts great leaders great artists they help us secure our inheritance they they shine the bright light toward the end of the hall, toward the end of that dark tunnel. They are the light at the end of that dark tunnel that leads to a future generous enough that it can afford all of us. And I, I love so many of these lines. I haven't, I wrote them like, I don't know, it's getting like well over a decade ago, you know, not haunted by the ghosts of this bygone age that most of this podcast so far has been about where opportunity was tied solely to class, gender or race. And yeah, in our history, uh, that might have been the way and it might even still predominantly be the way, but it can't be the only way. And that is why we are fighting for these voices that have not been heard, for these orientations that have not been accepted, for these genders who are underrepresented, for these races that have been, um, had stone walls thrown up to impede any real progress, you know? This idea that every voice, every one of us, we have a choice and we can choose to ignore it, to reject it or embrace it, 
you know, to get up and start uh, over again and again and again in the sense that um, I remember, oh my God, years ago, it was um, 9-11 had happened, horrific. And then George Bush and, and the whole Cheney, Rumsfeld, that whole cabal of those dudes, they all got together and they're like, yeah, yeah, 17 out of the 19, you know, terrorists were from Saudi Arabia, so we're going to bomb Iraq. And you're just like, I remember just that was one of the, the moments where I was like, what the hell is happening in this world? And there was a protest, and it was the first protest I'd ever gone to. It was February or something. It was bitterly cold in Winnipeg. And we went down to City Hall, and I'd, so I'd never been to anything like this, but I just needed to get off the couch I needed to get out of the door and stop just sitting there talking with a handful of friends about how helpless and hopeless we all felt. I just wanted to get together with some people who maybe felt the same. And at no point of that day did I feel like anything we were doing was going to um, certainly, you know, impact the intentions or the actions of the American administration. But for me, it was just like, I'm, I have to, to live with myself. I have to get off the couch and say, this is what I believe. This is who I am. And uh, that was great. What I found so kind of, again, another story, I get, I'm a, I'm a performer, I'm uh, probably doing some, uh, you know, event producing at that time in, in terms of production and theaters and performances and concerts. So I get to uh, the city hall and there's a speaker. I don't mean a sp like a physical PA speaker. And it's sitting on the ground. Nobody brought a, a stand. So they just put the speaker on the ground on the steps beside the guy who's a woman or whoever it was that was speaking, who was talking. But if you know anything about sound at all, you can't put a speaker shooting into the knees and calves and thighs of the front row of the people who are all clamoring up the stairs. There's thousands of people in this thing. So because the speaker's not up over their head, being able to amplify the voices, all you literally hear everywhere is like, and then the people, I guess, close enough, they could understand what he was saying. So they'd be like, yay! And it was like, I kept looking around going like, is this a joke? Felt like a Saturday Night Live skit. I'm like, who doesn't know enough to bring a, a stand and, and to put their speaker on so that you can actually hear what the person's saying? Anyways, then we start and we take off and we're walking and there's cops everywhere and we're walking down the road. And people are banging on garbage cans and they've got like uh, signs written in primary markers like they're kindergartners, just like the worst spelling and the worst fonts. I remember talking to my friend Craig, who was uh, an incredible graphic designer who shared many of the same progressive political views and whatever. In one of our meetings in the weeks that followed, we weren't even talking about the politics of the whole event. He was just as a graphic designer horrified by how you care enough about this subject that's that's causing the death of thousands of human beings and you get off your couch and you're going to go use your voice in your physical body to get out there in this public space and make your your views known and he's like and you you write on this with a primary marker in like this 
terrible fonts and bad spelling and things are crammed together. You're like, he, I loved how he couldn't get over his, criti- his critical um, assessment of the protest really came down to fonts <laughs> and graphic design. And he had a plan for how he could... Um, provide the ability for people to put in their slogans into somewhere online and print off like really clear fonts that people could understand and things would be oh oh my god I just thinking about that conversation makes me laugh so hard because he was so offended by the fonts I really love that if you want to make a difference in this world it's going to be incremental it's going to be starting over again and then again And then again, and later today, again. And you're going to have to keep caring. Like, these things are complicated. These things involve people. They're, They're conversations. They're endless conversations. And one of the conversations we continue to have in Canada is this complicated conversation about cultural appropriation. I think we should dive into that. If we're going to talk about cultural appropriation, we have to at least have an idea of what the words mean. You know, lots of, there's lots of definitions for culture and what it is and isn't. The the one I like best is that culture is the essence of national identity, sovereignty, and pride. So again, here's where my experience in an Indigenous setting helped me see the vast difference in understanding. If you're a settler Canadian listening to this show, I would love to ask you, you know, if we were sitting across from each other and we were going to have this conversation face-to-face, I'd be like, what ceremony, what regalia, what song would best fit this description of culture for you if you're describing your culture, the, the, the essence of, you know, national sovereignty, identity, and pride? For many settler Canadians, maybe not you, but um, the most obvious would probably be the Canadian flag. The maple leaf would be an image that would identify, you know, your distinct identity and sovereignty that would set you apart from someone, say, flying the stars and stripes. Maybe flying that flag and singing the national anthem would be a way to express your pride in your nation. So if that's you, how did you feel? When the Freedom Convoy folks appropriated the flag and made it a symbol of their movement, did you see those folks who actually combined the Stars and Stripes and the Maple Leaf onto one flag? How'd that make you feel? I, I remember a, a music teacher at Standing Stone School uh, from Oneida Nation of the Thames Uh, She taught me how I could identify dancers from the Six Nations at a grand entry by their gestoa just using the fingers on one hand. If you're not familiar with what a gestoa is, it's um, like a headpiece that's decorated um, sometimes with beads, most importantly with feathers that are attached in a way that distinguishes the different nations. So... The nation of Seneca will have on their gestoa one feather 
standing straight up. So she used her pointer finger and she just pointed straight up. Then she said, Cayuga uh, was one feather to the side. So she pulled her finger back in and she just stuck her thumb out to the side. Uh, Onadaga, she kept her thumb out and she put that first finger back up, was one feather up and one feather to the outside. She said Oneida was two feathers up and one to the right side. So her thumb was still out. Her pointer finger and her middle finger were all up. Mohawk, she pulls her thumb in and she's like, is three feathers up? And Tuscarora, and she just makes a fist and she's like, no feathers. So the just through the headdress, the gestoa of the regalia, you could tell what nation that dancer is from. I've never forgotten it, obviously. I, I Sometimes I, I brush up on it to see if I could still remember it because uh, I just found that so profound. The beadwork, the stitching, pretty much every aspect of regalia carries cultural significance of identity, sovereignty, and pride, When which, which I've learned just from being around friends and drummers and powwows to learn from, to observe, to, um, to appreciate. Now, if I was going to apply that to myself, what do I have? You know, my grandparents came to Turtle Island from northern Scandinavia in the land of the Sami people, and I don't know if they were colonized before they left or after they got here. I just know that my grandparents didn't teach my dad any of our traditional customs, language, ceremonies, stories, or songs, so my dad couldn't teach me. And by the time I was old enough to realize how important this was to me and why, they were all gone. And I couldn't ask any of a thousand questions that I would have. And I'll tell you a story. Rob, my drum keeper at Standing Nation, he knew this as I tried and flailed and failed miserably <laughs> to try to find a way to describe who I was and where I was from every time we were introducing ourselves around the drum because I didn't know, and I didn't know how to answer the question. And uh, finally, there was this one morning. Oh, my God, he's such a funny guy. It was early in the morning. We had a gig up north on the island here, and uh, so I picked him up in the van. Now, we've been friends for close to two years at this point. And so he gets in the front seat, and everybody's got a coffee, and we start driving down the road, and he's like, hey, where are you from? And I'm like, shut up, it's too early for this. And he's like, hey, where are you from? I'm like, seriously, shut up. I'm, I'm, we're just, it's too early. And he just kept saying it, where are you from? Where are you from? <laughs> and he wouldn't go away, and the drive was going to be so long that I had to just finally say, look, I don't know, okay? I don't know where I'm from. I don't know who I am. Blah, blah, blah. I told him what I just told you. And he says, uh, ah, there you go. He's like, you know what, Rick? When you're a kid, you can blame your parents for stuff. Um, but you're not a kid. You're a man. You're an adult. So if you don't know who you are and you don't know where you're from, then it's up to you to figure it out. This is not, you can't blame anybody else. Get on it, you know? So that was my... That was a really great moment, although it was really early, and I don't think I had enough coffee, but I appreciated um, somebody just saying, hey, like, one of the reasons... Uh, Canada is complicated is because some of us don't know who we are. And 
we might know where we came from, generally speaking, but we don't have a connection to that place, that space, that time before us, to the wisdom and the teachings and the knowledge of all of our relations, our grandparents and great-grandparents and great-aunties and uncles. Because if we did, we would have that cultural experience that could ground us in difficult times of life through meaningful ceremonies, through an appreciation of the journey our ancestors took to bring us to who and where we are. And maybe, and most importantly, in this time of disconnection to ourselves and the planet and to each other, it would provide a perspective that would transcend the social media rage-baiting headlines and the grifters who exploit our fears and insecurities. So anyways, I want to play you a song. Oh my gosh, let's hope that that wasn't like a 36-minute intro to this song. (laughs) But I want to play you a song going into... Uh, Canada Day. It's not a political song. It's a travel song. It's a song about Canada through the experiences that I've had as an artist. I was touring with the Weird Sisters, and I've told you all about those stories. When we were at the end of our tour, and we were ready to deadhead our way back to Winnipeg the minute the ferry pulled into Horseshoe Bay. And I started to think of all the places I'd been, the moments, and the memories, and the beauty of this place. Not tied to which provinces were conservative and which were liberal or any other ideological way of describing Canada and Canadians. Uh, But through my experiences, just traveling. Now, okay, here, let me dive into the process of songwriting. In songwriting, verses are typically where you explore specific aspects of a theme or topic. And the chorus is the unifying idea that draws all of those verses together. Now, I wrote this song many years ago before having any of the experiences I've talked about in this episode. And when I was writing the song, I was using the verses to describe driving across the country, starting on the West Coast aboard the ferry and, uh, and you know, heading east. Now, as a songwriter, it was immediately obvious to me that if I'm going to start the song on the Pacific Ocean, I'm going to finish on the Atlantic. That's just great bookends for the song. And anything can happen in between. What's the unifying image or idea of the chorus? What can I use as the unifying theme from all of these kind of specific experiences? And I chose the maple leaf. I didn't understand at the time how complicated the maple leaf was as an image for so many people. And this was years before the Freedom Convoy branded their F. Trudeau message with the maple leaf flag. But to me as a songwriter, it still works. And I might have a different mental image when I sing that line. Not so much the maple leaf flying on a flag, um, that represents maybe a simplistic take of a complicated story. But I think of an actual maple leaf from an actual maple tree, of the nature I so love to be in, I'm so lucky to experience, of the creation that gives me the only sense I have of a creator. Uh, And if you live in Canada, I hope you have had a chance to experience some of the um, sights 
that this song talks about. I hope you've seen a prairie sunset that sets the world on fire with deep oranges and reds. I hope you've seen vast wheat fields blowing in the wind that look like great waves on an ocean, even though you're thousands of kilometers from an ocean. I hope you've been able to eat sweet, delicious fruit right off the trees in the Okanagan and maybe sip a glass of wine as you look out over the valley like we did one night from our friend's deck. I, I've driven the rugged coastline around North Superior, Lake Superior, so many times. At least half of my trips have been in the fog and rain or snow squalls where I could barely even see the road. But this has made those trips on days with clear skies just literally feel so precious. I hope you've made it to Quebec City, where it didn't even feel like we were in the same country anymore. The gorgeous architecture, the famous landmarks, and, and the memories of battles that were fought. I, I will never forget personally the white sand of uh, Martinique, a beach we explored on one of our first Eastern tours when a group of artists showed us around on a day off outside of Halifax and we were eating mussels and tackling our, our first lobster. What a great memory. So without further ado, I want to play this song called The Maple Leaf. Let's go on a trip across Canada in three minutes. Let's do it. As the harbor draws near the Pacific disappears In the bright lights of Vancouver From the bay we make our way Along the highway We start to climb from sea to sky Chateau Frontenac You can almost hear the sound Of 1759 Echoing across the plains of Abraham Then we walk the white sand Along the beach 
is nothing wrong with things being complicated, with admitting things that we don't know, of changing our minds, of asking questions, of becoming someone we've never been before, thinking thoughts we've never had before, particularly around things of sovereignty, identity, and pride, and our stories and how we're drawn together by these shared experiences. Well, I don't know if I succeeded at anything <laughs> today, but it was a good therapy session for me. I really appreciated it. Like, Rick, thanks for being honest and for being humble enough to not worry about, like, how you're saying stuff. And I was like, really good that way. And yeah, just overall, just like, um, <laughs> I don't care. I don't care. Like, five of you, like, I'm just glad you tuned in. And out of five, probably one of you, yeah, probably about 20% of you were like, you know, upset about something in this uh, episode. So anyways, oh no, now I've become like 20% of you are like finding this podcast (laughs) rage baiting. (laughs) Oh, but that'll probably like uh, really increase engagement. So that's good too. Oh, well, let's process verbally, shall we? Hey, I love to say that being creative is a mindset because it is. And it's a lifestyle because it is. And that lifestyle and that mindset produces an energy that empowers resiliency in yourself and in myself too, because I really need resiliency. And the confidence all of us need to face the challenges that life throws at us could screw you, life. Life can really suck sometimes, right? I'm not, am I wrong? Am I wrong? No, I'm not at all. Anyways, um, this process creates momentum. I love that momentum because, uh, That's what like propels me into the next episode, into the next experience, into the next thing that challenges me and freaks me out and it keeps me from being boring and sedentary. And uh, I don't want that. So I hope for myself, I don't want that for myself and I don't want that for you either. So I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Feel free to leave a comment or ask a question. And always remember, you are capable of infinitely more than you give yourself credit for. Me, myself, I give myself a lot of credit, but you maybe need to still work on that.